boys and girls, and welcome to episode 24 of Popper's Cage. This is our first episode in nearly two years, but we are definitely back. It's the right time for the cast to come back, and we're very happy to be here. My name is Jason Moore. Some of you may know me as Dime Collector or as Bamboo Rush on MTGO. And I'm going to be one of your hosts. We have a new host as well joining the cast. He is an athlete, comedian, philanthropist, popper veteran, and master of Ethereum. Everyone, please welcome Special Kyle. How's it going, my friend? Well, I don't think I'll be able to live up to all that, but it's going great. (laughs) Well, only time will tell, I suppose. But it's definitely a pleasure to have you uh, co-hosting Popper's Cage. And I'm sure a lot of people are unfamiliar with this show since we have been gone for so long. Essentially, we are a popper podcast, so we're going to be focusing on the classic popper format. Every once in a while, there's a chance that we may dive into some related formats such as standard popper or other budget formats, but we're really here for the popper community hopefully to be entertaining, a source of information for you guys. If you're not familiar with Popper, we will be providing some links in the show notes. It is an all-commons format. It's an eternal format, but it has it has the appeal of being a budget format. Today, we're actually going to be talk, talking about the Dragons of Tarkir spoilers. So we're going to be looking at some of the commons in this set. This is the third set in the Cons of Tarkir block. And of course, Cons of Tarkir, the the first set, brought us Treasure Cruise. So why don't, before we jump into that, we can just kind of reintroduce ourselves to you guys, to the listeners. And we'll start with you, Kyle. I know you're currently in Wisconsin and you've had a a long history with the Popper format. Can you give everybody just uh, some basic info on, you know, where you're coming from and who you are? Yeah, so I don't remember if my name was said. I'm I'm Kyle Walton, more commonly known as Special Kyle at Magic Online. And I actually started Popper. I had a low number of tickets on Magic Online after a particularly poor block season. And I saw Popper as a format where I could still play Constructed without too big of an investment and go from there. So I originally, and this was a number of years ago, I went through some of the daily deck lists that were doing well, and I saw that Affinity had been doing well, and it was a deck I'd played before when it was in both uh, Standard and Modern or Extended at the time. And I purchased a version of the deck and was left with two tickets. With those two tickets, I played a two-man, won it, played a few more two-mans, Won those, eventually I was up to 12 tickets, played a couple dailies, won both of those, and honestly went infinite after that, just playing Jeez. dailies and premiere events from there on out. Throughout the whole history, I, you know, I, I did grow my collection, and I very much enjoyed playing other decks, but I've been kind of devoted to Affinity. I've played it more than enough that I know the ins and outs of pretty much every matchup, and I have a good feel of where the other decks are. But that's what I'm known for on Magic Online. People still know me as the Affinity guy, even when I log on sporadically these days. For people that don't know about me, I've been producing Popper content going on three years now, starting at the beginning of 2012. And I've been covering the format on a very consistent basis. I started by producing YouTube videos, and that snowballed into working on this podcast. I was, I was on the cast from its inception, And uh, currently, I write 
and produce videos for mtgoacademy.com as well as blackborder.com. And for a time of stretch of about a year, I also provided content for Star City Games. So there was a point where I was releasing popper content like crazy for three websites uh, pretty much going on at the same time. And that kind of brings us to this very cast. Like I said, we are going to be talking about the Dragons of Tarkir commons. That's going to be our main topic. I, I will say about the set in general, what we tend to find with these newer sets is that because the commons are heavily geared towards limited play, that is what they're designed around, more often than not, I think the majority of the cards aren't going to have a huge impact in a format like Popper, which is an eternal format. Like I said earlier, it's, it's fast, it has a high power level. But we also see that there tends to be a couple commons that sometimes will eclipse anything that's come before in terms of doing what that specific card is designed to do. So there usually will be you know, one or two gems that possibly have applications uh, and then a lot of fodder really <laughs> to uh, round everything else out. Uh, and Kyle, I think you said that you've kind of glossed over the spoilers so far but haven't really got a chance to talk about them in depth. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely on the mark. All right, well, this is our chance. So I want to go through the cards alphabetically, if that's cool. And I think the, the one I want to start with is actually an example of a card that I think is completely unplayable in Classic Popper. And that's a card in white. This card is called Avon Tactician. So this is a creature, Bird Soldier, for four colorless and white. So it's converted mana cost of five. And just right there, converted mana cost of five is a very interesting CMC in our format because the cards that see play at this mana cost have to be very high impact. A lot of the times I consider them, consider them to be turn the corner cards. So in a, in a deck that's uh, maybe playing a control role, it'll be on the back foot, on the defensive, for the early game, and then when it plays a five mana spell or creature, it's usually about to stabilize and transition into the end game. So think about cards like Mold Drifter, Gray Merchant of Asphodel, or Mnemonic Wall. All of these cards are able to do something immediately when they enter play. They give you a body that can be a defensive body, and they're they're getting you value on top of that. So. Looking at this card, Avon Tactician, let's see what we're actually getting for five mana here. We're getting a 2-3 flying bird soldier. Um, so those stats already, they're slightly better than Mold Drifter, but uh, you know, a 2-3 flyer for five mana is not exciting, I would say, especially in Popper when a lot of decks really don't want to get past one or two mana to cast the majority of their spells. And then we have um, it enters the battlefield trigger, which is when Avon Tactician enters the battlefield bolster one. So this mechanic bolster, choose a creature with the least toughness among creatures you control and put a plus one plus one counter on it. This is a little bit of value. You get to put a plus one plus one counter on a creature. If Avon Tactician is your only creature, it's going to enter play as a 3-4 flyer for 5, but I really just feel like this card is too expensive, too slow, and it it really, uh, I think, exemplifies an unplayable card in this format. 
I think you did a great job of explaining what makes a five casting cost card good. In general, just because Popper has so many sets that it's drawing from, is that if you're looking for a specific effect, effect over the course of Magic, there's been some one, two, three mana card that has that effect. So the cards we see being good will have that effect plus something else. Mall Drifter, for example, can be a divination when you want. Divination, a fine, a fine three mana spell, and it's often cast as that. But then if you want to invest a full five mana, you, you get something a little bit better. You really need more in a five or more mana spell than just a creature. Please do not expect to see this card uh, seeing any type of classic popper play. And I'm ready to move on from this clunker of a uh, creature. I've had enough of it. I wanted to look at two cards that I found interesting because they've essentially been printed before, but... Now that they're at common, they have a slightly more expensive mana cost. One of them is in white. It's called Center Soul. It's an instant for colorless and white. And it says, target creature you control gains protection from the color of your choice until end of turn. And it has rebound. So this is a returning mechanic that we're going to see in a lot of Dragons of Tarkir cards. Um, this card is basically emerge unscathed which came about in rise of the eldrazi the set that originally had rebound but it's been reprinted as center soul as a common with a slightly more expensive mana cost personally i don't think this card has any current applications because there's not really a pre-existing deck that i see it seeing play in but i'm curious to know if you have any other thoughts on the card kyle I think this is a card that is very close to being playable, but we'll never actually get the chance to see that. The card that springs to mind that does see plain popper is Apostle's Blessing. Yeah. Apostle's Blessing, it's one in a white with the white being a Phyrexian mana, so you don't actually have to pay that white mana, you can pay two life. That allows you to give a creature you control protection from the color of your choice artifacts until end of turn. This is normally seen in a very popular blue-red themed strobe deck. Uh, the upside that this spell has is that it can rebound the next turn, giving you another trigger on your creatures, as well as giving you another essentially unblockable creature, depending on the matchup. But the actual requirements of white mana, I think, will prevent it from ever overtaking Apostle's Blessing in any deck that it would see play. The other card that I wanted to mention uh, that's in this category of Pseudo reprints is a card called Contradict. It's a blue instant for a three colorless, two blue. So, again, converted mana cost five that we talked about earlier. And it says counter target spell, draw a card. So, two uh, very vicious sentences in, in Magic's history put together on the same card. And this is actually very similar to a card called Dismiss, which is not a common does the exact same thing but for one colorless less so at five mana i'm not sure that people are going to be playing contradict and like and it kind of harkens back to what i said earlier that uh, a lot of spells in this format are one and two mana to be sitting with a five mana counter spell in your hand even one that draws you a card i think could be pretty painful because it's not really going to do anything until the mid game that's going to actually have to work out for you, and you're going to have to still be alive by the time that happens. Um, Exclude does see quite a bit of play in blue decks, but it's a three-mana spell. It's, it's easier to splash in multicolor decks. I think 
people will try contradict as perhaps a one of. I don't even know if they do more than one, but I'm not sure that it's really going to get there. Uh, how do you feel about it? I also feel that exclude is probably the much better version of contradict, especially when most decks is going into want to be a control deck. And Popper, a lot of the important spells for a control deck are, are you're trying to counter spells that are going to deal you large amounts of damage, which happen to be creatures. So you're happy to spend three mana on a spell trying to draw a card. However, a card like contradict, which the card that might spring to mind for some more recent players would be cryptic command, a card costing four converted mana total that the probably most relevant combination of abilities on the card is countering a spell and drawing a card. But again, this is even more limited than that spell, which that was a rare, so you'll never see a popper. But not only is it more limited, but again, it's more expensive overall. And there's just better ways to do the same, same job. I want to move on to a card in black. And this card is called Foul Tongue Shriek. It's an instant for black and it says target opponent loses one life for each attacking creature you control. You gain that much life. Now to me, I feel like this is almost, not quite, but almost the definition of a win more card. And that phrase usually refers to a card that is at its best potential when you are already winning the game. If you're playing Foul Tongue Shriek and you're trying to maximize its value, you already have a lot of attacking creatures pressuring the opponent's life total. So in those cases, I would say the majority of those cases, you're probably winning the game. Now, Foul Tongue Shriek can do a lot of things to help an aggressive deck have reach, essentially, which is a way to close out the game without connecting with those attacking creatures. So that could be something that's helpful. You can have a bunch of your guys on the board, maybe they're blocked, and you can just suicide them in, cast Foul Tug Shriek, and steal some games that way. You can also gain life, which will help you race other aggressive decks, which is kind of interesting. But to me, any card that really needs a certain stipulation for it to do anything kind of raises a red flag. So if you want a card that gives you reach in an aggressive black deck, you can probably turn to things like, I don't know, maybe Bump in the Night, which... Uh, makes them lose three life or uh, you know there, there's other things you can be looking at that don't need you to set up the game in such a certain way as soon as you said it's a win more card i think you hit the nail on the head one thing that i like to do when evaluating cards like this is because we can all imagine instances when we could set up a board state that we need this card to win or this card helps us to win i like to imagine and all the other board states that you can imagine, would you rather have this card or say something such as a Doomblade is stable? Because in the games where you're going to need this card to actually win and they have these uh, large number of creatures on board and you're just trying to get in the final points, maybe a Doomblade earlier in the game would have been much more useful and more useful in every other game that you'd see it than a card like this. I think in 95% of the games, you'd rather have some black staple card that is all around good than the situational card that's only going to be good when you, you and your opponent each have 20 creatures on board. So far, I think we've been pretty adequately depressing in our views of a number of these cards, but hopefully that will turn around uh, when we talk about Impact Tremors. Now, I'm not 100% sure that this card has many homes, but it is one of the first cards I saw in the spoiler that really was eye-opening for me. Now, Impact Tremors is the first of our red cards. It's colorless red, converted mana cost 2, for an enchantment. 
that says whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, Impact Tremors deals one damage to each opponent. The thing that I thought about when I first read this card was taking it to the absolute extreme, the absolute best case scenario. How could this this card be used to just outright win a game? How can we get creatures into the battlefield pretty much uh, infinitely? So the very first thing I thought about was, was the familiars type of decks, which eventually get to a place where they can generate infinite mana with the Karoo lands, the bounce lands, and use Ghostly Flicker to bounce a Mnemonic Wall and a Cloud of Fairies and untap those bounce lands, return the Ghostly Flicker, and rinse, wash, repeat. They can infinitely bounce these creatures and have them enter the battlefield. Impact Tremors could be used as an alternate win condition, a faster way of killing opponents, because that deck does run time off the clock. There's a lot of clicking involved, there's a lot of triggers to put on the stack, and of course things like Grape Shot are no longer in the format. So, you know, some variants of Familiars try to kill with a Caravex Torch or a Rolling Thunder effect. Maybe Impact Tremors is something they will consider as an alternative, but uh, I'm a little unsure, so I'd be curious to hear what you think about it. This is a card that I think we will see emerge. I'm just not positive where it's going to be. In a deck, like you said, a familiar deck, I could see it having a slight advantage over Rolling Thunder, perhaps game two against a control deck, where they're going to have a counterspell for your Rolling Thunder or something. So on turn two, if you can drop this, you now have your weight condition on board, essentially, assuming they don't echo any truth. But even if they do something like that, it's easy enough to replay on the turn you're going off. Uh, another thing that I'm sure a lot of people will jump to will be putting it in a mono red goblet shell, which I would caution them about. I want them to think about turn two, whether they want to be dropping enchantment that's going to make each of their goblins one damage more, or if they just want to be dropping a couple goblins on that turn that could earn them an automatic four, three points over the next turn. Another place I could see it is maybe a red-white tokens build. In a lot of tokens decks, the whole goal is that, that you're putting in enough tokens that each of those tokens might only earn you one or two points of damage when you're overwhelming your opponent that you end up finishing them off. And with a card like this, it could almost double the efficiency of some of the tokens that you would normally be getting from. All right, well, let's hastily move on to... Um, is this our first creature? I think this is our first pseudo-viable creature that we're going to be looking at. And this is Shambling Goblin. This is a card in black. It costs black, so one converted mana cost for a 1-1 Zombie Goblin. Two pretty relevant creature types, I would say. And uh, the text on Shambling Goblin reads, When Shambling Goblin dies, target creature and opponent controls gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. So this card is almost identical to Festering Goblin, but the main difference is that Shambling Goblin targets a creature an opponent controls rather than targeting any creature. Now on both of these cards, this trigger is mandatory. So when these creatures die, you're going to have to give something minus one, minus one. With Festering Goblin, if the, the opponent had no creatures on the board, you're actually going to have to target one of your other creatures with its ability, and that could end up maybe killing one of your guys. 
and netting you some card disadvantage. With Shambling Goblin, that's impossible because it has to target a creature and opponent controls. To me, this is a strict upgrade on Festering Goblin, which is a card that doesn't really see play, but uh, I have faced zombie decks in Popper. Every once in a while, they do pop up. Uh, thanks to cards like Ghoul Caller's Chant, which gives uh, the zombie tribe a lot of card advantage, and a card like Nameless Inversion, which goes to the graveyard and sits there as a zombie card. So with Ghoul Razor or Ghoul Caller's Chant, you can recur your removal spell from the graveyard at a very cheap cost. And in the case of Ghoul Caller's Chant, you can also get a creature with that. So it, it's, it's a fringe tribal deck that gets a lot of value, has a lot of synergies. So I think in that deck specifically, Shambling Goblin will see play. And it's a card that interacts in an interesting way with some of the exploit creatures that we're going to be talking about kind of at the end of the set review as well. What do you think about Shambling Goblin? This is absolutely a strict upgrade of Festering Goblin. Another deck that I've seen Festering Goblin in, some people do run it in their mono black decks that mainly focus on discard with chittering rats and ravenous rats and such. And I cannot tell you the number of times that I've lightning bolted a festering goblin to make them kill their ravenous rats that's, that's on the table. I think that this upgrade, it will see some use in popper. I don't think the upgrade's big enough that's going to make this anywhere near a tier one card. But the decks that want to run Festering Goblin, you're going to want to run this instead. So anyone out there listening, uh, go out, spend your four cents, get a copy of this card, throw it in the deck. Very nice. So now I actually want to move on to a couple of the red cards that I think have a pretty strong chance of seeing play. The first one I'm going to talk about is called Tormenting Voice. So this is a sorcery for colorless and red. It reads, as an additional cost to cast Tormenting Voice, discard a card, draw two cards. So this is another strict upgrade we're seeing, and this is an upgrade over a card called Wild Guess, which came via the core set, and Tormenting Voice is going to be a little bit easier to splash because Wild Guess costs red red, and this one costs colorless red. I've seen some decks on the fringe play Wild Guess. Occasionally, Burn decks will throw it in there, and more recently, because of cards like Gurmog Angler and Treasure Cruise, there have been some really weird kind of variants of Exhum, which I found extremely surprising. And that, those are decks that really want to cheat out like an Ulamog's Crusher into play. They do a lot of stuff with their graveyard. They basically want to just pitch a bunch of cards and put them into the graveyard. So a card like Tormenting Voice could help with that. It also plays pretty well with either Madness cards or flashback cards. There's a, there's a lot of uh, interesting mechanics that interact with the graveyard. Retrace, Delve, Dredge, the list goes on. So I think this actually has a fairly decent chance of seeing play. Not really in the mainstream, not in Tier 1 land, but uh, perhaps somewhere else on the fringe. Yes, I think this is a good card. Again, it's in a format of very good cards, but this will see some play. The deck where I see it getting the most play will probably be some form of mono-red burn deck, 
where unfortunately wild guesses effectively and equivalent to tormenting voice since you don't care about the colored mana but it is a different card with that being said so maybe you want one one of each two of each depending on on the build or if you want more than more than four i also like it very much in combination with treasure cruise I think currently decks that run Treasure Cruise aren't doing enough to early game get cards in their yard. They're waiting until turns 5 and 6 if they're actually casting Treasure Cruise, and by that time you might as well be running an Inspiration or something of that sort. So I think that this could go towards some form of strategy of getting cards in your graveyard quickly while slightly improving your hand quality. Next up, we have what I would consider to be my favorite card in the set, and I think possibly has the most potential of seeing play. This is another red card, so red is really the big winner in Dragons of Tarkir as far as I'm concerned, and this card is called Twin Bolt. Uh, unfortunately, it's not two lightning bolts. That, that <laughs> would actually be pretty cool, but uh, it's similar to some cards we've seen before. It's an instant for colorless and red. Twin Bolt deals two damage divided as you choose among one or two target creatures and or players. So this is a versatile card. It can do a couple different things and it's reminiscent of the fire half of the card Fire Ice and it's also reminiscent of Forked Bolt which is an uncommon. Does the same thing that Twin Bolt does but Twin Bolt does it at instant speed for a slightly higher cost. So what I like about this card is that it kills stuff. It can kill either side of a Delver of Secrets. It can kill a couple uh, Cloud of Fairies, couple Goblins, couple Tokens. It's really just an instant speed way of hopefully getting some value. And I think it has a fairly decent chance of seeing play in a probably a controlling red deck, maybe the blue-red variant of Delver, the blue-red control deck. It's a little cheaper than Arc Lightning, and because you can do it at instant speed, you can interact with cards like Spell Stutter Sprite. And it, of course, can go to the face. So what you can do with this card, if it's not clear already, is you can either deal two damage to a single target. So you can do you can shock them, you can shock their guy, or you can split that damage up. You can do one damage to them and their creature, or you can deal one damage to two of their creatures. However you want to do it, uh, Twin Bolt really gives you that kind of flexibility. So I really like this card, and I think that some people are going to agree with me. Kyle, do you agree with me? I absolutely agree with you. I think that this has the most applicability, not in burn decks, but as you said, in control decks. Burn decks, they, they want spells that are going to be three, four damage per card. This card only does two. But the advantage that this one has is that you can take out multiple threats, multiple nuisances, whatever you whatever you need to deal with. Another card that this is reminiscent of is Lava Dart. Lava Dart was a judgment card that for one red, you dealt one damage to a creature or player. It was an instant. And a flashback of Sacrifice Mountain. So in the decks it was played in, it was essentially one red to deal two damage divided as you choose among target creatures and or players. But the big drawback in today's popper metagame is that with it going to be in a control deck, as everyone knows, control decks want to be making their land drops each and every turn. You don't have the option of sacrificing a mountain. So I think the one colorless to to offset that flashback cost in a card that's already seen some play in popper, I think Twin Bolt's in a very good position to 
be in a tier one deck at some some point. I do also want to mention that Forked Bolt, which is the predecessor to this, has seen play in modern and formats like Legacy. I'm not sure about Vintage, but uh, it's just really interesting that this kind of value is appreciated all over the place and is still viable. So that's why I think Twin Bolt will make it into the format. Not necessarily a key player, but as a player, it will be on the field. The last cards that I want to talk about are uh, a number of different creatures. They all have the exploit mechanic. And let's take a look at one of them. The first one I guess we can just go to is called Silumgar Butcher. So this is a black creature, four colorless and black. Again, converted mana cost five uh, for a 3-3 zombie djinn. It's an interesting combination of creature types there with the exploit mechanic. So that is, when this creature enters the battlefield, you may sacrifice a creature. So it's a may, uh, gives the card a little bit of flexibility. When Silumgar Butcher exploits a creature, target creature gets minus three, minus three until end of turn. Now there's a number of creatures with exploit that have been printed for this, um, this expansion. There's another one called Vulturous Avon, and uh, just all over the place. I think they're mostly in black. There's another one called Carsi Sadist. But the main thing that I'm wondering is, does Exploit have any potential in Popper? There's a lot of creatures that you don't care about dying. Potentially, maybe you even want them to die. Thanks to mechanics like Undying. Young Wolf and Stormbound Geist both get bigger after they've gone to the graveyard. There's other creatures with Persist. We saw Shambling Goblin already, which has a benefit after it dies. Um, getting stuff into the graveyard is important. You mentioned Treasure Cruise already. Filling that graveyard up for Delve can make or break games sometimes. So I'm just really curious to know if Exploit is going to see play and perhaps Will there be decks built around this mechanic? Because really, if you're going to be playing these creatures, you want that situation to be available to you. You want to be able to exploit. We saw Silumgar Butcher. It's a five-mana creature. So if I'm playing that, I really want to be able to get that effect, get that last gasp on uh, my opponent's creature and make this basically like a Shriekmaw or Flame Tongue Kavu, you know? But I'm really not sure about exploit. And I'm really curious to hear what you think about the mechanic. Is it a trap, or is there something here? I think for the most part, the mechanic is a trap. People are going to be trying to jump through hoops, setting up situations where they have a creature they want to sacrifice. And in general, when you're playing a creature, you're playing that creature because you want to attack your opponent for damage. There are a few exceptions, such as familiars who have different comfort playabilities and such, but those are going towards a completely different avenue of play. In general, the creatures in Popper, they're, they're decently powered creatures for low mana costs. And then the exploit cards themselves are on the opposite side of the spectrum, where you're paying high mana costs for five mana for the creature. They don't have that high of, high of power. You are getting some added benefits, but again, you're sacrificing another creature that you were required to play earlier in the game. But it's not all downside. I think there's hope for the brewers out there. Personally, I think that the mono black discard decks have room for some of these cards. The mono black discard decks, again, they're playing cards like Chittering Rats, Ravenous Rats, Liliana Spectre. They're playing cards that have a minuscule body 
but with a relevant effect to the game. So all these creatures, they're coming to play and they're taking a card out of your opponent's hand. And once they're done, normally the black decks aim to get a little bit of value out of them, but it isn't expected. They've already done their job. So I think that a deck like that might play something like Vulture's Haven, where a few turns later, you're now getting a 2-3 flyer, getting rid of your 1-1 who wasn't attacking anyway, and you're drawing two cards and losing two life, which this is a deck that already plays Sign and Blood. So you're tacking on a couple mana to Sign and Blood, two to be specific. But in addition to that Sign and Blood, you're now getting a 2-3 flyer. It's not amazing, but I think the opportunity is there for some value to be had. All right, guys. Well, that's pretty much going to wrap up our review of the interesting cards from Dragons of Tarkir as far as Popper's concerned. Just to sum things up, I would say personally that I think Red is the big winner in the spoilers. And for me, I think Twin Bolt is the best card in the set for Popper. Personally, I would probably follow that up with something like Impact Tremors, perhaps even Tormenting Voice, but I think any of those three red cards are the ones that are going to have the best chance of seeing play in Popper, and I would go as far to say that Twin Bolt will definitely make it into some 3-1 or 4-0 daily decks within the next few months. I would say that's probably a sure bet. If anything, it's going to be Twin Bolt. Uh, Kyle, do you have any different opinions on that no i think twin bolt is the power card in this set i can't count the number of times i've seen a control player casting rolling thunder for, with four mana yeah. to kill off two one ones and this is a card that while it doesn't have the option of ending the game like rolling thunder does it can serve that exact same role for only two mana so for half the cost two turns or earlier this does things that decks wanted to do but cheaper than they're currently being done Cool. Well, now, guys, we're actually going to take a short break, but when we come back, we've just finished our main topic, obviously. We're going to do a new segment for Popper's Cage called the Daily Event Deck Spotlight. We're going to pick out an interesting-looking deck from a fairly recent event, and we're going to talk about it. So before we get into that, we are going to take a short break here, and uh, we'll get right back here at Popper's Cage. guys we are back here at popper's cage episode number 24 and we're going to be doing a new segment it's a de deck spotlight so we're going to take a deck list from the popper dailies in this case we are going to look at a 4-0 deck list from a recent daily i believe this daily occurred not too long ago this uh recording is on March 19th so this deck list is from a I believe March 15th popper daily event so the deck we're going to be looking at is a 4-0 list by a player named SDGZA or SDGZA he's uh, piloting a, an interesting looking blue red Tron deck now Tron is a form is a deck is a strategy that usually doesn't see this type of configuration. The blue-red color combination does exist in a lot of the Tron decks because they play Mold Drifter and they play Treasure Cruise and they play Burn Spells. 
but this is more of a dedicated control deck that happens to use Tron as its mana engine. So to me, it kind of reminds me of the blue-red cloud post decks of old. Now, there is a link to this deck list in the description, guys. I'm going to just quickly go over the, the mana base, some of the creatures, and then run through some of the spells, and we'll talk more specifically about the more interesting card choices. So this is, of course, running all of the Urza lands, the four Urza's Mine, four Power Plant, and four Tower. And when those are assembled on the battlefield, you get access to at least seven mana if you have one of each. So it's, it's a way to ramp up very quickly. Um, this deck is also playing pretty much all of the blue-red duels that you can play in the format. We got four Is It Boilerworks, four Is It Guildgate, and four Swift Water Cliffs. Now, right off the bat, that's really interesting to me because that's 12 come into play tapped lands, and that's kind of on the high end of things. I think, you know, 10 or 11 is acceptable. We do see in other formats like Standard where they have those enter the battlefield tapped lands that let you scry one. A lot of those decks will play about 12 because you're getting such an added benefit. Here we have Boilerworks, which is a bounce land, so you can get some benefit out of your Swiftwater Cliffs that gain you life. But aside from that, not a huge amount of synergy going on there, I would say. The creature base is four Seagate Oracle, four Mold Drifter, and an Is It Cronarch, which is a card you don't see very often. Basically, this is a predecessor to Mnemonic Wall. So this guy's three colorless blue red for a 2 2 human wizard, and he does the whole Mnemonic Wall thing, which is when he enters the battlefield, he can return an instant or sorcery card from the graveyard to your hand. So I think in this deck, he's pretty much just a value creature. That's going to get you back that key removal spell, that win condition, or that counter spell that you really need to find. From there, there's a whole number of different spells that you don't usually see. Uh, the, the permission suite is three condescend, three prohibit, and three remove soul. And Condescend is a card we really haven't seen since the days of Cloudpost, but because Tron can produce so much mana, it's a really interesting counterspell to play. Um, it counters target spell unless its controller plays X. It costs X and a blue, and then you get to scry two. So it has a little bit of added benefit there. Then it's playing a number of burn spells. Two Burst Lightning, which is a shock that also has a kicker for four colorless. And if you pay the kicker, instead of shocking, it deals four damage to a creature or player instead. So again, because this deck utilizes extra mana, it can take advantage of Burst Lightning. It's running four Flame Slash, which has been a standard in Popper for a very long time. Deals four damage to target creature. Four copies of Carevex Torch, which is one of this card's fireballs of choice that's x in a red it deals x damage to target creature or player it's a sorcery and any instance that target caravex torch such as a counter spell costs an additional two colorless mana to play so this is a fireball that kind of gets around counter spells in a way and then it's also playing two copies of rolling thunder which we mentioned earlier in the cast it's x colorless and two red for a sorcery that deals X damage divided any way you choose among any number of target creatures and or players. So that one can wrath the board for a lot of mana, or it can eventually just do a lethal amount of damage to your opponent. 
So that's going to be one of the primary win conditions. And then aside from that, we've got four prophetic prism and two compulsive research. And that's going to round out the main deck. We'll talk about the sideboard in a minute. Ultimately, I would say that um, this deck is a kind of a straightforward control deck. It wants to gain card advantage, defend itself with removal and permission, and ultimately assemble this mid, or sorry, this late game advantage of having superior mana, superior number of cards in hand, and ultimately uh, just no chance of losing because it's eventually either going to kill you with mold drifters and seagate oracles or more likely probably just going to rolling thunder you right in the face kyle what do you think about the deck's game plan is that a fair summary of it or have i missed anything in terms of uh, just generally describing that no it's definitely a deck that aims to do one thing and to do it well it doesn't try to diversify with being able to play a little bit of control some games or going on the offensive another this is a deck that if it's going to win, it's going to win on turn 20 and no sooner. One thing I find really interesting about this control deck is it seems to play out with actually using your removal spells first. And then once you can afford your more expensive counter spells, such as Condescend, the Remove Soul, which it is going to be a little situational and maybe the Kicked Prohibit, that's when you'll start countering the spells. But with cards like Flame Slash, Burst Lightning in the deck, you can early on kill off the threats that are happening on turn one and two. And then you can start worrying about actually trying to play the countering role. So you can let a couple things resolve before you have to get all your mana up and running. Because you do have those one red spells that are going to let you get into the mid game. And then from there, your counter spells can hopefully get you to the late game after that. One of the things I wanted to mention to people is that we are pretty much speculating on this deck from an outside perspective. Neither of us, I don't think, has uh, has sleeved this up or played this deck yet. So take our opinions with a grain of salt. We definitely don't mean to be overly critical of any of the decks or to uh, criticize from the sidelines. But we do definitely want to question some of the choices and see... Try and get in the mind of the deck's creator and see what they were going for and what the their strategy is with this list. So with that being said, I do want to bring up uh, a statement that a lot of Magic players have probably heard before. I think it came from Patrick Chapin, but I'm not sure. Uh, and ultimately, it, it deals with deck building. And from a competitive deck building standpoint... The quote goes along the lines of, when you're creating a deck or working with a deck, you want to be very careful not to make a strictly worse version of some other deck or some other strategy. So this might be a bit of a tough question, but my question, Kyle, is does this deck list to you look like a worse version of another deck? We see you know, other Tron decks that have been very successful in the past and other control decks that have also been successful. Is there anything about this particular list that maybe seem suboptimal when compared to those other options? I don't think that it's suboptimal. I think that if you're going to play this deck, you have to know that almost every deck you play won't necessarily be controlled, but a creature deck that you're playing against. With the reasoning being is that three main deck removed souls, your burst lightnings, your flame slashes, your rolling thunders... All your cards are aimed at controlling the the board, not your opponent's hand or draws in any way. So I think that this this deck can be very good, and is probably much better than most other Is It Tribe decks. If you're staring down a handful of creatures from your opponent, 
In the control mirrors, one thing this deck does have going for it is that mana advantage. It's playing 24 lands, which is already more lands than most popper decks, let alone the other Tron decks. And it has that mana engine built in. So say in those control mirrors where hitting land drops is so important to staying afloat in the game, being able to play out a land that's going to boost all of your mana just by virtue of it being on the table, it's uncounterable, uh, you know, has nothing to do with the stack, could be a huge advantage as well. So I think that this is a deck that aims to have one of the strongest late games in the entire format. So it's, it wants to go bigger than just about everything else that's out there. Not having sleeved up this deck and played, I can only imagine that the creator of this deck did his homework and realized that he needed to be playing the, those removed souls earlier rather than later, especially with 12 comes in and play tap plans. Yeah. One other card I'd like to talk about is the choice of is it Cronarch over Mnemonic Wall. Okay. Again, they do essentially the exact same thing, except Mnemonic Wall is a 0-4 instead of is it Cronarch being a 2-2 that can attack. I'm very surprised by that choice. But again, I'm going to work under the assumption that the person building and playing this deck knows the ins and outs much better than I do. And having this creature that can attack on a board that you've already dealt with their creatures, again, can speed up the clock and prevent you from needing to click as much when you can just get straightforward damage in. It speaks a lot to the choices that went into this deck. And I think that as much as we can can say from the sidelines, the choice of is it Cronarch, which most people would probably say is inferior to the Monarch Wall, just that that's in there makes me think that a lot of thought have gone into these hard choices and probably a lot of testing as well. As far as the main deck goes, I don't really have a lot of other comments. I would say to anyone interested in this deck that I would actually just sleeve up the 75 that is presented here before making any tweaks and really feel it out. Take it into the field and see how these cards interact with each other, how the game plan flows and see what the like the original creator was intending to do and and how does that work in a practical setting kyle do you have any general thoughts about the main deck aside from that before we go into the sideboard just going back to the exclusion of treasure cruise from this deck i really like the compulsive research in the deck it's doing the same thing as treasure cruise it's drawing you three cards you're playing 24 lands, so you're not going to be missing land drops, again, after drawing three cards especially. So discarding land isn't a, isn't a huge drawback. And you're consistently paying three. You can pay three on turn three, you can pay three on turn ten. Unlike Treasure Cruise, where, sure, there might be some games where you get to play it early or wait only for one mana, this is a consistent card that, in a deck where you aren't reliably filling your graveyard, I would much rather be able to do the same thing every game than do one thing crazy every couple of games. You actually just reminded me of uh, one other interaction that I have the tendency to overlook, which is the Is It Boiler Works that I mentioned previously and Compulsive Research. So that's another synergy you get from playing this deck. You, you play Is It Boiler Works and you can bounce a land into your hand. So you have a guaranteed land in hand for that compulsive research that you can pitch away. So that's something you can do later on in the game just to ensure that your your card advantage is on swole. Like it's it's really working to your advantage. You you won't have to discard two cards no matter what. So that's a you know a little added benefit, but a control deck like this is really trying to 
eke out as much benefit, as many advantages as it can over the course of the game. Let's go ahead and quickly look at the sideboard because this is a very obtuse sideboard. There's there's not a lot of nuance going on. Uh, it's got four Hydro Blasts, three Negate, four Electricery, and four Gorilla Shaman. So what I'm seeing here is some high-impact specific cards that are going to potentially hose certain matchups. One notable omission from the sideboard is Pyroblast. So I, I would imagine that this deck already has a good matchup against something like Mono Blue Delver. Otherwise, I think they would be wanting to pack the Pyroblast in the sideboard. What do you think about the sideboard? I think that the negate over the Pyroblast, again, in a deck that has a more than a decent amount of creature removal and creature countering, if you're using the Pyroblast to counter a creature, you probably have a, dif a different card already in hand, or at least plenty in your deck that can that can serve the same purpose. So by paying an extra mana for negate, where you're go going to deal with anything that's not a creature, we've also opened it up to every other color and magic that you can counter. So it, it's a much more versatile card. Same thing with Hydroblast. It's not going to hit every deck, but there's so many decks playing red that having just a one blue counter spell that comes in against a large portion of the field is important to have. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have these Electric Breeze and Gorilla Shamans, which are going to be aimed at a much smaller portion of the deck. What they do, they do extremely well. They're extremely threatening. These are cards that can win you those games automatically without the opponent having to see a single other card from your hand. My only parting thought is this is a deck that can truly strike fear into the heart of, heart of an opponent. There's been tons of times when I've been sitting across from an opponent playing a blue-red control similar similar to this. You know that as soon as they untap their next turn, the game is over and you will be shuffling up. All right, guys. We're going to do one last segment, and I'm pretty excited for this one. It's going to be a little bit of a game, and this is called Sneep, Keep, or Ditch. This is a game that I picked up from listening to the A-Team podcast again a couple years ago and basically we're going to look at some sample hands from this blue red tron deck that we just talked about and we're going to ultimately come up to the decision is it a sneep and a sneep is a snap keep that means that this is a hand you will keep every time no matter what it's a great hand is it a keep which is still a good hand but maybe not as excited about it or is it a ditch it's a terrible hand, it's a bad hand, it's too questionable, you want to get that hand out of there. So we're going to look at some of these hands, get a feel for what the typical opening seven is in this blue-red Tron deck, and give our evaluation. I do want to just give a, a little bit of advice to any players out there, that when you snap keep a hand, especially playing Magic Online, make sure you're ready to click keep as soon as possible, just so that, that split second of hit, hit and keep as soon as the hand has been drawn, it really lets your opponent know what they're in for, so. I love it. Here is the first hand. So everyone listening, you guys can write this down if you want, or just picture this beauty in your mind. So the hand is Caravex Torch, Seagate Oracle, Is It Boilerworks, Urza's Power Plant, Is It Guildgate, Rolling Thunder, and Burst Lightning. We're going to assume that the opponent is unknown, and uh, player draw is up to you if you want to make a comment on both of those. You're more than welcome to. So what do you think, Kyle? 
sleep. <laughs> okay, would you like to expand on that? So this hand, it has, most importantly for control, it has mana. In addition to that, we have a single mana re removal spell and burst lightning, so you have a little bit of early action. Again, a card like that's important when you're playing with is a boiler works because you can tap on that second turn, play a removal spell, and then play boiler works on top of it. So it's really not like you've lost a turn, which often it often happens with the bounce lands. From the initial hand quality, I am on board with playing this hand out. Okay, tell me what you think about this one, Jason. Urs is mine. How is Simon so far? I would say I'm very excited about Urza's Mine. Okay, I'll, I'll give you the rest of them here. We have an Urza's Mine, we have a Swift Water Cliffs, and we have an Is It Guildgate as the Lands. There is a Prophetic Prism, a Removed Soul, a Seagate Oracle, and a Carevex Torch for your spells. What do you think about that, that whole hand? Uh, I don't know if we can go in between Sneep or Keep. I'm going to go ahead and call it a Sneep, assuming that... The opponent is unknown, but I, one thing I want to note about this hand is that you have a lot of different options on your turn two slot. Your turn one slot's pretty much locked in with a tapped land, and then on turn two, depending what the opponent plays, uh, you're most likely going to be playing that Urza's mind out, mine out, because you're you're either going to kill like a one one creature if you really have to. Uh, you might also be leaving up remove soul if the opponent is playing a creature heavy deck and has a lot of high impact turn two place or you might just be playing that prophetic prism there is a slight chance i don't think it's the optimal play that you want to uh play another tap lane on turn two so you can get your seagate oracle out but i imagine there is some kind of situation where that would come up i i like your evaluation of the hand the the only time i could see playing that a second tap land on turn two would be if you do know that you're going to be playing against another control player You've already got both colors of mana. You can hold off on the Prophetic Prism for a little bit. But in general, yes, you're going to want to be playing something on turn two. Then my only other comment on this hand is I think that Urza's Mine was another come to play tap land. This this hand would not be as clear-cut of a sneak, but having that ability to have a turn two play is really big, I think. Okay, guys, that is going to wrap up Sneak Keeper Ditch, and it's also going to wrap up this episode. I do want to let you guys know that we hope to be getting some listener feedback and even listener questions. If you guys want to know something in particular about either of us or about the Popper format, please send those questions, and we're going to give you some contact information right now uh, where you can do that. So first of all, if you want to contact me, you can do so on Twitter. I'm at Dime Collector SC. So you can shoot me any questions or you can follow me on Twitter. I also provide content for blackborder.com. I have a column there. It's called Common Ground. And that's been going on for quite a while now. We're in the 50s in terms of article counts. And then we're in the 60s at mtgoacademy.com. In my article series there is Dime a Dozen. I primarily do videos there. I've been doing daily events lately and uh, trying to play at least a daily event a week. Lately, I've been scrubbing out pretty hard with Mono Blue Delver, but we'll see if that can turn around. Uh, other than that, you can also check out this podcast and a little bit of extra information like the links and stuff over at popperscage.blogspot.ca. 
So um, that's going to be a pretty good resource. And we may in the future be starting up a Facebook page and some other like promotional things and ways to kind of reach out to the listeners a little more. Uh, how can they contact you, Special Kyle? You can reach me on Twitter at cries for help, C-R-I-E-S, the number four, H-E-L-P. Or at, as Dime just said, we will probably at some point be putting up our Facebook page, and that will be another great way to contact both of us where we can, we can see your messages. I'm very excited about this, this moving forward. So if you want to be podcast famous, get a, get a shout out from us. Send us in some questions, send us some feedback, some criticisms. I personally, I know I'd love to hear it all. Your feedback will matter and can help us develop some better content for you. So if there's something you want to see or hear, let us know. As far as that goes, I want to thank everybody for listening. And please tune in for episode 25 of Popper's Cage. This is Jason Moore signing out. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you. Thank you.